0: Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Charlotte Bond. On the day we are recording this episode, the death of Silvio Berlusconi was announced. Having been indicted over 30 times during his long career, he was the longest-serving Italian post-war prime minister. He changed the political game in Italy. A schemer, political kingmaker, and playboy, Berlusconi is the perfect example of the kind of corrupt politician that we love to hate. His story fascinated us as much as it horrified us. And it's no wonder such scheming and political power plays pop up so often in our speculative fiction. These stories have all the melodrama we could possibly want. So it is with great pleasure we are chatting to Andrea Stewart in today's episode to talk about tropes, magic, and of course, the ever-fascinating political machinations of fantasy stories. So Andrea, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Yeah, sure. I'm Andrea Stewart, and I'm a fantasy and science fiction author I am the author of the Drowning Empire series, which starts with the Bone Shard Daughter, and it is set on an archipelago of migratory islands, and it follows several main point-of-view characters. There's a daughter who is trying to reclaim her rightful place as heir. There is a smuggler who professes not to care about what's going on in the larger world, but can't seem to stop from doing good things. There are two women who are in an established relationship who are trying to deal with the class differences between them. And there's a woman on a remote island who's trying to figure out why she's there and how she got there. And this is all in an Asian-inspired setting. So that's like kind of <laughs> the gist of what that book is about.
0: Love it. And of course, so much maneuvering going on as well, which we will get to. But let's start <laughs> with fantasy being you know, a genre full of tropes. The fantasy genre has a rich history of tropes. But these days, tropes are often considered something of a bad word sometimes, but The Drowning Empire kind of embraces quite a few of these classic fantasy tropes while still bringing something new to the table. And I was just wondering, you know, how it feels to be an author writing in fantasy and someone who maybe, you know, sees other people pushing against the classic tropes, but, you know, what made you want to embrace them?
1: Well, I know that sometimes people push against the tropes because they think, well, that's been done before. And I think that we should be doing new things. But at the same time, I feel like tropes have that fondness and that familiarity. And there's a reason why we consistently see those things pop up in our stories. So to me, like when I was sitting down to think about what I wanted to write into this book, I I did look at some of the tropes that I really enjoy as a reader and what I wanted to see in my book. So I I did that very intentionally.
0: Do you have like a specific favorite trope that you were like, okay, I have to just get this in because I have always wanted to tackle this trope because I love it?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, For me, it was definitely the magical animal companion trope which you see a lot in fantasy um, because (laughs) I grew up reading a lot of books that had those magical animal companions, like the blue sword, for instance, that's like my comfort read. There's the girl that finds out she has magic powers and she gets a special horse and she gets a really cool cat. (laughs) And that's like wish fulfillment for me. So I knew that when I wanted to write this, I I wanted to write in this companion animal that really like sticks by this character side no matter what and to me that's part of the appeal is that unconditional love right I I I didn't have a ton of pets growing up my my mom's not a huge fan so so having those animal companions in the books was kind of an escape for me
2: I have to admit I really like the animal companion in it it's so cute
1: (laughs) he's very fun
2: I was really excited when you said it was a kitten. I'm like, Oh, is it going to be a cat animal companion? And then it turned out to be something slightly different. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's cool. I I could totally have one of those as well. (laughs) When you were making your animal companion, does it reflect like your ideal companion then? If you were a kid, like, you know, drawing your perfect animal companion as you were growing up reading your fantasy novels, is this the one you want? Or did you kind of have to go, well, actually it's got to be like this to fit the book?
1: Oh, it's definitely like wish fulfillment on my end. Like that would be my perfect animal companion. They would be, you know, cute when they're little. <laughs> and they would be very loyal, of course, and very mischievous. I, I enjoy the pets that are kind of a challenge. I <laughs> I know my husband is not the same way. <laughs> he has a very um lazy cat, the one that he chose. And then mine is extremely active and mischievous and gets into everything and that's that's the kind of companion that i really enjoy is, is something that's like a little bit more challenging and kind of um pushes your limits a little bit so so yeah so that's kind of how how nephew is, is that he he is very mischievous he's very loyal and he's very sweet and then you know you see as the series goes on he grows and changes
2: so going back to our conversation of tropes before we got distracted by cute little animals, um, Megan obviously asked you if there was one trope you had to put in. Was there one that you went, you know what, even for me, that's too much?
1: <laughs> i I debated about the talking part for a little bit. I'm like, is that too much? And then I just said, you know what, I want to put it in. I'm going to put it in. So <laughs> I just kind of threw the kitchen sink of like what I wanted to throw in there at Mephi, really. So there was nothing that I kind of held back on.
0: Amazing. I mean, if you can't just like absolutely go for it with fantasy, I mean, what's the point? (laughs) So when the series begins, Lynn's magic is no longer, you know, she's no longer able to use her magic. Having a central character with inaccessible, unusual, or misbehaving magic is is quite a common fantasy trope as well. I mean, why do you think this is such an appealing character setup?
1: Well, I think that it's an appealing character setup because you have some conflict straight away where somebody has to access their magic for some reason, but if they're unable to then they have to go through some sort of process to unlock it or to fix it or to make it work for them. And then that is a plot point in and of itself already. And it can also cause further complications just with their relationships, with any other goals that they might have. So I feel like it's really appealing in that way, is that it's sort of um, a bit of built-in conflict that can also reveal some things about character and about their relationship with other characters.
2: The magic that Lynn is unable to access at the moment is magic that is in the title of your book. It's, it's bone shard magic. So it's the idea that everybody in the empire gives up a little bit of bone um, from sort of trepanning, which I thought was very cool, um, just at the back of their skull. And then th- those bones and the magic in them can be used to power its constructs and things to defend the empire. So So there's a lot of magical detail within that. Where did you get the concept from? Is this something you've borrowed from real mythology? Because obviously trepanning was something that was done in the real world, but it was usually done to let out spirits inside your head that were possessing you. What made you think, you know what, I'm going to turn that into magic?
1: Well, (laughs) so it was kind of a long development process where it started with the single idea of what if they used bone shards for magic. And from there it kind of I kind of combined it with this idea of having constructs because I knew I wanted to write something with sort of unusual, creepy constructs in it. So, you know, from there I was like, well, I want to have the bone shards powering these constructs, but how are they going to power it? Well, the person that they took the bone shard from has to still be alive so that they can get some of that life force from that person. And then I was thinking about, well, how do they figure out what they're supposed to do and when they're supposed to do it? So they have to have these commands that are engraved on the shards. So it was one of those things where I kind of just took one step at a time and thought, well, what's the most logical thing that comes after that? What fits in this magic system? So <laughs> for me, it's it's the creation of a magic system is very involved and it involves a lot of kind of steps of thinking like what's the next logical thing and what works in this society and what makes sense if i take this one assumption and go from there
2: i think magic systems and how authors create them is always always so fascinating and another strong element of lynn's story in particular is that she's prevented from um, accessing this magic by her father the emperor and she's also kind of got a male rival in the form of a sort of step brother i don't don't know it's
1: like a foster brother
2: yeah so you've got this character lynn who could be hugely powerful but she's being prevented from educating herself and being educated by the men within her life. So I wondered if that was something that was dictated by the story itself. We talk about tropes, you know, and it's, it's easier to have an emperor than it is to say, have an empress and have it as her mother being the one preventing her. Whether this was something dictated by the tropes, whether it was something you wanted to reflect from current society, where many women are in fact prevented from education by the men and the rules around them.
1: You know, I wish I could say that it was that smart. Uh, <laughs> for me, it, it it was just kind of the way that I imagined it was that this would be her rival. This would be who was preventing her. I, I seem to have a common theme in a lot of my writing with a bit of an overbearing parent. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I think my parents are pretty strict, so maybe that's where it's coming from. But for her. I I really thought about that kind of progression of how she would go about defying her father's wishes and how she would go about unlocking these secrets one by one and as she is unable, as she is able to do that then she can grow more and more powerful and that kind of like almost leveling up (laughs) I don't know if you play video games but I had a little bit of that sense of like, I want to make this a bit of a puzzle for her. I, like I said, I wish I could say it was that smart as far as oppression goes, but I was not thinking about that.
0: That's interesting because, you know, a lot of speculative fiction ends up being quite allegorical. You know, it's often a commentary on our society or, you know, just wanting to engage with our society through a different lens. So, I mean, did you have any sort of real world parallels and commentary that you were wanting to make with your magic setup, your, you know, the idea of sort of inaccessible or broken magics, or I mean, any of the tropes that you sort of included in your story? Were they any of them? Were you thinking about that kind of allegorical nature? <laughs>
1: Oh, yes. I was I was thinking a lot about um, the nature of power and who wields it and what that means for everybody else. One of the tropes that I see a lot in fantasy fiction that I kind of wanted to challenge and twist a little bit in this one is that idea of somebody being that oppressive ruler. And then you have your hero, your protagonist come along and defeat them. And either they or somebody else goes in and takes that bad rulers place. And they're a good ruler. And that's the end of the story. And that's, you know, the good ending, right? You've got a good ruler in place now. And for me, that was something that I wanted to explore throughout this series. Like what happens after that? And is that actually the good ending? Like, is that where we want to end up? Is that where the people are going to be the most happy and the most satisfied. So (laughs) that was one of the things that I was really intending to explore throughout this series was taking that kind of trope and kind of examining it a little bit more closely. Um, As far as like the men oppressing women kind of thing, I didn't really want to get into that in, in this book. It's not really patriarchal. There's pretty even spread of Men and women in whatever positions.
0: Yeah, I I have to say, like, thank you because honestly, I get so sick of just okay. Well, you know, we overthrew the the bad leader, and now everything's just gonna be super rosy and good. It's like that is not how it works. <laughs> and uh, you know, even though there's this is fantasy, I you know kind of want to see a little bit more going on than that a little bit less kind of naivety when it comes to what happens when you overthrow your entire government
1: <laughs> I mean not to say that I don't love reading that sort of story because I do I enjoy it very much I just you know yeah. it's something that I always I always think in the back of my head like well what's gonna happen after that
0: yeah it's kind of those one of those things it's like yeah we like it when we see it but when we see something different now that's exciting <laughs> Anyway, well, that's what I think. But I am a bit of a political nerd, which you may have gathered from my intro. You know, uh, it doesn't help that I'm living in Italy at the moment. So I'm like, oh, all this politics—it's so fascinating. Um, <laughs> do you have any ideas on why, like, fantastical settings really lend themselves to political narratives? Because I feel like a lot of fantasy these days is coming out. It's so steeped in. Just those political machinations of courts and and people trying to win over the other people, you know, something from Game of Thrones to um, the Goblin Emperor, a lot of Robin the hobbs stuff, you know, all this, all these books are really they they use fantasy almost as a way to talk about politics <laughs> and vice versa. But uh, I mean, I love it. As we said, I'm I'm a big. Uh, political nerd but but what do you why do you think that it really fits so well with fantasy
1: well i mean politics is always about jostling for power right and and about people trying to get what they want and forward their own interests or the interests of a particular group and with fantasy you can kind of explore a little bit further what that means and and dig into particular situations in a way you might not be able to if you were writing something based in the real world, because you can just make up whatever you want, right? So (laughs) you can get into all these different kinds of situations with different people involved or different interest groups. And I feel like it also just lends itself really well to conflict. So I mean, that to me is a lot of the heart of a story is what is the conflict? What do people want? What's stopping them from getting what they want? And what happens, right? We all want to know what happens and and how things shake out. So, to me, that's that's why I think fantasy is just so ripe for political conflict. It's just it's just a really interesting like playground, I think, to <laughs> to, to um, play with that. Like you were talking about Game of Thrones. I know there was like House of House of the Dragon. Is that? that's like throwing like dragons into the mix with with politics right like what would what, what would yeah. that be like and what is that an allegory for is that an allegory for, for nukes maybe who knows right so <laughs> that to me is like a really interesting way to explore politics
2: i feel like dragon politics should be a, a book that somebody writes <laughs>
0: Well, it does sort of make me um, think of, I think it's Tooth and Claw by Joe Walton, which is basically Dragons Do Pride and Prejudice. But
1: uh, <laughs> Ooh, I have not heard of that one. That sounds fascinating. Oh, really?
0: Yeah, Joe Walton's great. Uh, I, I recommend her stuff uh, if you haven't come across her. But yeah, I think Tooth and Claw is one of her earliest ones. Um, but yes, it's like Regency period family drama with dragons. <laughs> I love it. But do they have bonnets and
2: embroidery? Because, you know, that's also a key part. Look, you're just going to have to read it, Charlotte. It's a good book.
0: (laughs) It's true. I will have to read it now. (laughs) One thing I was wondering because a lot of fantasy is still kind of tied up in this faux medievalism that we, you know, we have this leftover from Tolkien and just building on that. Do you think that there were sort of limited in the scope of what kind of political representations that we see in fantasy as a result of this kind of thing or you know with the rise of more urban fantasy modern fantasy are we kind of moving away from that do you have any thoughts on
1: that well I I would love to see like a little bit more modern fantasy as far as like well what happens as technology and society advances And I I don't know if you've read um, the Greenbone Saga. That that to me was fascinating. So good. Yeah. So (laughs) I I mean, a combo of, hey, this is a fantastical world. It's completely different from ours. Yet they have like airplanes and cars and different brands and everything, right? And that I think lends itself to some different kinds of conflict because I think the politics of a medieval world are going to be a little bit different from the politics of a more modern world where you have a little bit more of that globalization and you have more trade, like stuff occurring and and more technology that may be interfering or creating more problems. So that was definitely something that I saw in Greenbone Saga that I thought was really interesting was just the, the problems and the conflicts that new technology was creating. So, yeah, I, I, I I don't know why necessarily that we get stuck in this medieval slash Renaissance time period, except maybe that's just easier to categorize as fantasy because if you look at something like Greenbone Saga, I think it may be a little bit difficult to explain to somebody because we don't have a lot of precedent for it.
2: Thinking about traditional fantasy and politics and It's difficult when doing a podcast not to make horrible, sweeping generalizations, but a lot of fancy in politics sort of centers around a central court and people like, you know, in a central landmass and everybody fighting as you would expect in, say, America or in the UK, where, you know, there's lots of of feudal systems and lots of different lords. But yours is different, yours is set across islands. And the islands seem to be relatively self-contained. So how did you go about adapting a sort of traditional fantasy political structure and going, you know what, I'm also going to have a load of islands thrown in there, which is going to you know, make very interesting geopolitics?
1: Well, part of it is just that I really like the aesthetic of having an archipelago of islands. I like that idea that, yes, they may be united in a certain way, but they're all still quite different and they have different cultural values across across the different islands so I, I did think a little bit about okay well we have this this central island that is ruled by the emperor and yes he does have control over the other islands as well however because of of distance communication issues like they have to be each be ruled by a governor they kind of report to him so it's almost a little bit of a feudal system in a way right where you have like a a king and then his his lords and and all that so again it was just one of those things where i was thinking what what would make logical sense in this case and then also my thought was that they were at one point individual and there was no centralized empire there was no emperor at one point but they unified because of an outside threat, which, you know, you get into <laughs> later on as uh, the series progresses.
0: Okay. I have a bit of a fun, silly question, but uh, just because I've, I've started thinking about sort of politics and tropes in fantasy, and I wanted to ask you about, you know, do you have a favorite political trope in fantasy? Because I'm just thinking, like, I love the kind of, Number one, if you're talking Star Trek, you know, Riker or <laughs> Spark, whatever. Uh, but like the the n- closest advisor to the king, the emperor, whoever, the the main person in charge is second in command, who's kind of poisoning their ears, you know, and playing lots of games and undermining them and undermining everybody else, you know, think Jafar. <laughs> That's kind of my favorite. I was wondering if you had one.
1: Oh, gosh, I don't know if I have a favorite. There's like so many opportunities for all of these interesting things to happen in politics. I think like probably, I mean, there's like a couple of things that I really like. Like one is that vacuum of power. Like I like that kind of trope where somebody like unexpectedly like dies or is banished or whatever. And it leaves this position that everybody else is kind of jostling to fill that vacuum. I always enjoy that. Um, and I always enjoy like the political marriages. <laughs> that to me is always really interesting. Cause you're like, Oh gosh, like are they actually aligned as far as motivations go? Are are they actually like interested in each other in a romantic way or is this just like a marriage of convenience? Uh, so yeah, those are like the two things that I really enjoy in politics.
2: Now, that's the problem with letting the guest answer first is that she stole both of my answers. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I have to admit, I do like those. Um, the fantasy one, sorry, the romance one, I think it can be done really well and you can have a lot of conflict and a lot of, um, Complementary characters going around, but it can also be done really badly. Whereas I think an assassination is just so much chaos and and great fun. You can't go wrong with a good assassination. I have to say,
1: oh, assassinations are wonderful.
0: Charlotte, I'm going to just say again, you need to w- read Winter's Orbit. I know it's not fantasy, but you need to read it. <laughs> yes, Miss. <laughs> we shall go and order it now. Okay,
2: well,
0: at the end. <laughs> Okay, so we've talked a lot about politics. So, let's maybe talk a little bit about identity. So, another like major theme of the trilogy is like identity, and I love how, you know, in particular, you focus on like your the identity when it comes to our relationship with the past. And with this, I kind of wanted to talk about constructs because they're a really cool idea. And it's just a very interesting way to explore the question of identity and how people relate to their past so i mean why did you establish it that way i mean like so you've talked a little bit about you know some of the the ways you kind of wanted to solve problems as it were when you were coming up with your world building but why did you want to link constructs so much to how people relate to their pasts and what did you hope that would say to people
1: well first off I really enjoy science fiction as well as fantasy I mean fantasy is like my one true love but uh (laughs) science fiction is definitely something that I mean my one of my first speculative fiction books that I read was I robot by Isaac Asimov I really like those ideas of those kind of science fictional ideas almost where you have a created being. You may have instilled them with memories, but what does that make them then? Like how much of that is themselves and how much of that is just what you made them? Like, do they have an identity? And if you don't have a past, like, what does that make you? Can you come up with your own? I, I and. And one of the things that I think about a lot too is just with with people, like where we always say, like, "Oh, well, you're you're a product of your environment, you're a product of your past," but we also have our own uh, internal motivations and 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 things that we can determine, no matter where we come from. So, to me, that was kind of something that I wanted to explore too. I feel like we are constantly changing as people, depending on just the choices that we make and the people that we feel like we want to be or the people that we think that we are. And we're never the same person that we were like five years ago, 10 years ago, sometimes even a year ago. So to me, while identity is something that you commonly see thematically in YA, that's like a thing that's, you know, they're always like, what kind of person do I want to be? Because they're growing up. I mean, do we ever really grow up, right? <laughs> I feel like we're we're always we always have the this chance to change and to change who we see ourselves as and who we who we want to be. So that was something that I was kind of thinking about. If that makes any sense, I feel like I rambled a little bit <laughs> as far as as far as the themes of the book go.
2: No, not at all. That sounded like a perfectly succinct answer to our question. And it also kind of leads into another question I wanted to ask, because you were talking about real life and how we develop our own identities. But in your book, each of your characters are really motivated by their past, you know, like Lynn and Jovis and Sandu and everyone else. And they all have different paths, like there's revenge, atonement, processing grief. So I wondered, how did each character's personality traits influence the path you chose for them? So was it a case if you went? I need a character that's going for revenge, or actually, you know what? This character has this particular type of tr- character trait, so they're best suited for a, a path of revenge. Kind of which way round was it?
1: I feel like it's one of those things that's like where you plant two seeds and then they grow at the same time and they're intertwined. Right? It's it's not it's not like I think of one or the other. I think of them both at the same time and they kind of develop together. So. For example, with Jovis, I knew that I wanted to write this kind of smuggler character with a heart of gold because rather like grumpy and off-putting in some ways, but also, you know, kind of, or he thinks he's funny anyways. And I was thinking about what are his, what is his motivation? Like, I know that he ended up in this life of a smuggler and it might not necessarily have been his first choice. So what happened there? And I knew that I wanted him to be searching for somebody. So I kind of like built those things together as the story went, if that makes sense. Like it just, I feel like it's, it's that chicken or the egg question, right? You, <laughs> you can never really go back and think about, well, which one was really first because they're kind of happening at the same time.
2: Oh no, I'm totally with you. I mean writing is a, a balance of planning and sort of organic growth really isn't it? and how many memes are there about out there about characters just taking on a life of their own? because obviously as a, a writer it's you've got to kind of make the character's past important without them being completely defined by it they've almost got to choose their own journey in a way as they go along or else it doesn't really really grow as well right I kind of talked myself out of something though. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, that's like how Jovis is. He's very stuck in the past in the beginning. And that's part of his whole process is just learning to move past that and into his present.
2: So to wrap up on a kind of fun little note, which... Of the characters and their journeys really, really speaks to you. I mean, it's a bit like choosing your favorite child, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, to force you to pick one of your characters and say, you know what, that that was the journey that I really got invested in as a writer. Which which one was it? Or your top two, if you can't pick one?
1: Oh gosh, um, it's. I mean, it's definitely. Uh, I would have to say if I am going to say which one, like I relate to the closest of their journey, it would probably be Lynn in that way that. You know my my parents are both immigrants, and they you know, they're very focused on, okay, well you you got to be good at math, you got to be good at science. Like those are the non-negotiables. And you have to like work in like a you have to be like we're in a respectable like scientific field or like be like a lawyer be like a lawyer a doctor or an engineer right those are your three (laughs) your three career choices uh or or at least like something that something along those lines right which I didn't do anyways in my day job but those were the things that my parents were kind of pressing me toward and I was just this person that this child that just like wanted to read books and draw pictures (laughs) so and that was fine as a hobby but I kind of had to break free of my parents' expectations in that way, where it was like, well, you know, I could do that. I could go and go that path and try to be a doctor or a lawyer or engineer, but that's like not really who I want to be. And while my relationship with my parents is very different from the relationship that Lynn has with her father, I do feel like it's kind of similar in that sense where she desperately wants to please him and she really wants to impress him, but at the same time, there's this part of her that feels like this maybe is not her path. So I think that was probably the character arc that I related closely, most closely to.
0: Awesome. On that note, we are going to wrap this up, but for anyone who's interested, please do consider becoming a patron because We're just about to go and record some little writing craft questions as a little bonus for our Patreon supporters. So make sure if you enjoyed this to head over there and listen to a little bit more from Andrea. So thank you so much for joining us uh, today, Andrea.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Breaking the Glass
0: Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.